This episode is all about how hiring works in the game art function. We have two very experienced guests. The first one is Tatu Peterson Janssen, who has been in art leadership roles for over 20 years. And the other is Alexi Ryan, who has been in talent acquisition roles, helping several art directors build their dream teams. With this episode, we'll decode the recruitment process when it comes to game art and what an art applicant should do to increase their chances of getting hired. Let's uncover this. I'm very excited to have two guests with us today. I'll start with their introduction. We have a returning guest, Tatu, Tatu Peterson Yesen. Tatu is Senior Art Director at Rovi Entertainment. He has 20 years of experience working in different creative and management roles. And he has shaped more than 50 globally published games from mobile to AAA, has worked with a lot of teams and have varying expertise. And Tatu likes to share his knowledge and give back a lot to the industry. So excited to have you here. Thanks, Jirash. I will now introduce Alexi. Alexi comes from US. He's from San Francisco and has lived in Singapore, Hong Kong, Finland, and currently in Texas. Alexi has worked for Double Fine, 343, Rovio, and has also recruited for nine small studios across US, Brazil, Sweden, Finland, Turkey, Australia, for Wildlife Studios. Alexi is currently consulting full-time as head of talent at Gym Class VR. So, Today, I'm very interested to talk about how the hiring works in the gaming industry, especially for game artists. So first of all, I want to start with you, Alexi. I want to just understand how the hiring workflow typically works in a game art role. What are the behind-the-scenes process stages at most companies, starting from a requirement getting created to sign-off? So what are the stages generally? That's a very good question. And I, I wish that more people could see what happens behind, behind the scenes like this. I feel like a lot of us that don't know, we just apply and we wait and we hope. And if we don't hear, we, we start making up things. The, the typical hiring process is that there is no typical hiring process or workflow. It, it depends on the, the company. And for someone in my position doing recruitment, talent acquisition, whatever you want to call it, my job really is just to interpret what the hiring manager wants. So someone like yourself or someone like Tatu. So my job is really just to make it easier on you and also to save your calendar. So as far as opening the rec, if it's at a big company, there might be stages of approvals to go through. If it's a small company, it might just be a hand wave from one of the founders. How this makes a difference is if you are applying for one role and you might be good for another role, typically if it's at a larger company, it might be harder to accommodate that shift unless there's a headcount. But if it's a smaller company, you might have better luck if you're not a fit for that exact role or there's no role open at all publicly, you might have a better chance at landing a spot there based on your skills that in, in a way that they might not have thought of. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Got it. So uh, moving to Tatu, I, Tatu, explain me from the art craft and the game production team. How do they tie up with this requirement getting created and then get in touch with HR? And what are the initial processes they follow about like job description writing, talking with the, uh, the talent acquisition manager to describe their needs, and then the whole process from here? Yeah, I think uh, how Rex put it very eloquently is that there is no 
one process. I guess every hiring manager has some kind of a process that they try to apply. Every core company has uh, one way of thinking of what's the, the normal process for them. And way too often it gets adapted to be more and more complicated. Personally, I always try to just simplify all of those steps as much as possible. Um, requirements. Yeah, usually the, the usual process is that I write a uh, script of uh, what I think should go into the job ad. I send it to talent acquisition manager or talent acquisition specialist, and they're questioning my, my choices of like, why is this here? Like, could we leave this out? Could we leave that out? Uh, why are you expressing uh, experience in a number of years or titles? Like, could we just say more generally that you have shipped, a t- uh, shipped something? That's also the kind of best help I'm getting from the talent acquisition specialists is that they get, give me the second, uh, second check of whether my, my decisions actually make sense. But it's very organic. Got it. So getting the understanding from both of you and then recalling some of my common processes, I agree to what you said, but just to tie up everything in the most common understanding, first off, a need gets created. So in the art team, you realize that, yeah, like we, we need a certain skill set of an artist to, to come in. And then you sort of work through the management to create like a headcount that we require one person or more than one person. And then for that position, typically a hiring manager and a talent acquisition manager gets assigned. So they assist with writing the job description. And also maybe there's an interaction about the the kind of like the target profile and portfolio. So sometimes the hiring manager helps the, the people from HR to understand. And then there's like, publishing it so that there are referrals, there are inbound applications, there's source profile. And then the hiring manager, they decide the interview flow. So they they basically come up with, I'm going to have five interviews or two interviews or uh, uh, basically like an art test in between. So you follow that pipeline. And then at the end, there's like a wash up between the people who were the decisions maker. And then they decide to to continue with extending an offer. Yeah, and I, I think uh, just to add on that, um, maybe that beginning part is is something that varies the most in companies. Like, how do you get the financial agreement that, yes, we can hire somebody? How do you get that? What you use the word headcount? I guess uh, this is, there's kind of typically two ways of uh, looking at people in your studio. Like you look at them uh, as headcounts which means that how many people you can have in your studio. Then in smaller companies and uh, some companies, you not not necessarily have the concept of headcount, but you might have the direct PNL responsibility. I don't want to explain what a PNL is, but it's uh, just like the direct cost then I'll calculate it as an operational expense. This, this also kind of, I don't want to go any more kind of deeper into those topics because they are not kind of part of this. But just to explain that in some companies, the for example, salary might be something that is capped by the operational expenses. In some companies where it's looked as a headcount, it might be that you have these pay ranges for 
uh, certain positions, but you are not necessarily personally accountable for what the salary will be as long as it's in the range. So that is also kind of a very important thing to understand that for the hiring manager, it might be actually the best course of action to try to maximize your salary, which might be like bad for the company, but then they're not screwed up the next talent uh, review rounds or when, when you're looking at the salaries again, when you already hired somebody with a fair pay from the get-go. And this is, I would say that in many, many uh, bigger companies, the hiring managers are not bound by the, the budgets as much as, for example, in the startups, where every single dollar or euro counts. Mm-hmm. Got it. So now because you are informing that the hiring manager comes up with this information and it gets communicated and discussed at the beginning when the understanding gets established, I want to understand from you, Tatu, on the role of talent specialist, especially in the cases of hiring for game art. So what does that initial interaction look like? What do the art leads, art director go and tell from their expectations so that anyone from HR, because they're dealing with so many of different hires, they're hiring programmers, they're hiring artists, they're hiring people from, from finance as well, maybe. So what are the unique things that they interact on at this point of time, apart from just getting the job description to understand the nature of creative needs better? Yeah, uh, maybe I would kind of start answering to that question from the, the point of view that it really depends. Like personally, I just want to make even the, the first round of uh, portfolio reviews myself. Uh, I know that some of my colleagues are giving it to the talent acquisition managers. And I, if I would be hiring for design role, programming, finance, whatever, I would definitely give it to uh, the talent acquisition manager. But I still haven't found a way of doing it more cost efficient and fast that I just manually go through all those portfolios myself. So that's my my process for the very beginning of getting kind of going through the screenings. Uh, because I can't even think of like, how would I explain what is my taste? Like I could, like if I would have like a very long working relationship with a talent acquisition manager and the talent acquisition manager would have like a really good eye, I might be able to teach them within some time of like these kind of portfolios I'm interested, these are not. Or if I would need to source for new candidates, then it's a little bit easier that, hey, could you just start contacting everybody with this kind of a title working in these companies and directly just kind of uh, headhunting from those companies. But for uh, applicants that have actually applied, then I usually want to do the portfolio screening myself to have that they are according to my liking. And I don't, I, I just don't want to give, give that kind of control away. I want to keep it with myself. Got it. So Lex, um, what about you? Like when, when you have a job description, what are the kind of questions that you ask? And one thing which also makes me curious is because it's so passion driven. Uh, the, all the creative topics, 
is that something that you also use as a tool where you are using the name of some star artist from the team to basically try and sell the position to the potential candidate? Is that something that works better in the in the game art kind of recruitment? Yeah, great questions. I mean, as Tatu said, it's understanding someone's taste or, or preference, subjective preferences can be a challenge. I found personally that I am quite good at that. Maybe it's because I come from a creative background. I, I work very well in gray area. I'm a right brain intuitive kind of person. So for me, I like to work with art directors. I ask them for specific games, specific titles, studios to understand the styles that they like. How stylistic are they going to be versus how how realistic? I think where I would require a little more help is very specific technical things that we're looking for, like lighting. I think any of us can look at a piece of art and, or at least let's say video game art, we can look at it and go, that looks cool very broadly. I mean, we're, we're building these experiences for someone who knows nothing about art to enjoy it. So I think in that way, I can look at work of art and without understanding why I can go, that's a good piece of art, but I will require a little bit more information if we're looking for something very specific. And then um, on top of that, before I answer the second question, I, I agree with Tatu that, you know, talent acquisition shouldn't get in the way. I mean, we shouldn't try to be the gatekeepers and take power away from the hiring manager. We're simply here to make it easier. So if you have a recruiter that's trying to trying to tell you what to do, that's that's you know, we are advisors, that's it. So um for inbound, yeah, I mean, if you review every portfolio, that is great. And that's the advantage artists have. You don't have to have a great resume if you have a great portfolio. And in that way, artists have a leg up on everyone else in the in the gaming world if if they've been working, if they've been making their own personal pieces too. As far as using uh, current people in the company as selling points, oh yeah, absolutely. I I used both of you when I was at Rovio. I mean, it's not even that you're both great artists, but it's understanding who they're going to be working with. So I'm not just selling your accomplishments, but more actually I'm selling who I consider you to be as people, what it's like to work with you. So that's why it's even more important for hiring managers and talent acquisition to have a good relationship because you want that you want that recruiter to sell you as a person and it come from an organic, real place. So all, all the more reason to, to, to get along, I say. Mm-hmm. Got it. So I understood how you work. And I mean, we have worked together, so I understand. So, but I'm throwing like a softball just to understand on the screening criteria. So because you said that you, you are there to help the hiring manager yeah. uh, and you are there to support their processes, do you on your side try to decide whether to proceed or not? Or you kind of like um, divert almost every application? And in case if you are deciding whether to proceed or not, what are your criteria basically? Are you judging them based on uh, the culture fit and, for example, their motivation to work into this company or into this role or also on the creative aspects? Sure. So going into like first screening, 
Yeah, uh, a, a talent acquisition person should, like we discussed, be supporting the hiring manager, right? But sometimes the hiring manager doesn't really know <laughs> what they want, or at least they don't know how to get what they want out of an interview process. So that's where we can step in. I've done it on both sides of the spectrum where I will review all the inbounds, manage the referrals and do all the sourcing and the hiring manager, all they have to do is respond with a yes or no, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down, very gladiator style. Or, and, and I, I worked with the two of you more like this, especially Tatu. Tatu did a, a, a lot of the work himself. He was doing all the inbound screening. That was very helpful because I was managing 40 roles at a time. And usually, you know, you want to keep it to 10 or less. So, so asking hiring managers to do some recruitment work was part of the necessity as well. But as far as first screenings are concerned, I mean, you, you talked about passion and willingness to learn and that sort of stuff. That's all great, but but I feel like that's the baseline. I mean, you should you should be passionate. I mean, and and a lot of people are going to be passionate. Um, what we're looking for is do you check the boxes on experience from what the hiring manager has said that they want, right? A first screening is really just my opportunity to a dig a little deeper on topics that I've seen in your resume or profile that I know the hiring manager is going to want to hear about. Because my job is really just to sell you as the candidate to the hiring manager. So a recruiter is selling both directions. So I had this great conversation with so-and-so. And even though maybe it doesn't look like it on their CV, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to even make up for maybe things that lack on your CV or lack in some way. I'm trying to dig and find those good things. So when a recruiter is asking you questions, they are trying to get the information they know someone else wants to hear. They're trying to make you look good. Um, and then on the other side, then I'm also trying to sell the role in the company to the candidate. So that's the second point is that the screening becomes about me understanding your motivators. What do you like to do? What genres do you like? What styles do you excel in? Do you work more in Unity? Can you do lighting in Unity versus Unreal, etc.? What good team structures do you like? You know, tell me about a time where you had some difficulty with coworkers, whatever. I want to understand what's going to be good for you because if you're not a fit for this role, you might be a fit for other roles down the line. And I might not be working for this company forever. I've hired people. I hired someone for Rovio. Uh, I believe uh, he took over me, um, my role as the voice. He was through someone I talked to seven years prior, right? Gave me a referral. So it behooves the candidate to be very honest with that recruiter because A, they're trying to sell you and B, they might hook you up with something years in the future. Mm-hmm. Can I can I pick it back on that? Because like I, I really love what Lex said about just kind of his approach of what, what he wants to accomplish in those calls. I I do the same. Like sometimes I even like might notice that like straight away from the portfolio that maybe this person is not the right fit, but that person looks so interesting that I want to get the chance 
of actually having that discussion with him or her. And I, I do approach like every single interview uh, as an opportunity to get to know somebody. Like it's, it's something that is not only work for me, but it's also kind of networking. It's also about uh, leaving a good impression of, of myself, leaving a good impression of the company that I'm representing. I even sometimes have the kind of bad habit of going well, a little bit too much into the sales mode and just kind of overly focus on selling the opportunity to the candidate, whereas I should be maybe uh, asking more questions about the candidate themselves. But that's just kind of uh, many people think that it's only one way street. But at the same time, if the, the company is really, really wanting to hire somebody and they're already convinced based on the portfolio, they might be actually more interested in hiring you than you are interested in getting to work in that company. And then it's the hiring manager or talent acquisition manager trying to sell that position to you. And that's a great place to be, uh, but it's just kind of about the dynamics people don't necessarily understand about hiring. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you you said the absolute truth because now when I'm thinking of all the people I have hired and I try to recall the the processes and I how I went through, I think it was just like this where I was really impressed with their profile at the, the very beginning. And then it was always about, oh, how do we make this thing work so that this person chooses to join us? So, so yeah. true. Yeah, yeah. We would go to. I mean, we would go to crazy lengths to interview people. There was this one I remember. He has a really, really great online presence, and he spoke no English. He was from Brazil, and we were we had his partner come in and translate for us, and we were considering hiring this person, even though the language skills weren't there. Relocating them just because they had a great portfolio. So, all the more, all the more reason to keep keep that work up to date and keep doing stuff because. We'll find totally. you. We will. Yeah. Yeah. And the, this yeah. is this may be how some of these like hiring for art position is a little bit special because the dynamic is often very different because in, in most cases, the hiring manager is already sold on your skills based on your portfolio. So there's no kind of question about whether you can do the job or not. Uh, most likely all of that has been already solved by the, the portfolio. Then your role in, in that interview is to not uh, do anything to, to uh, make the other person think that hiring you is a mistake. So you're in a good position already because you managed to get into the portfolio. You don't necessarily need to sell yourself. You just need to avoid mistakes. Yeah. Um, there's one, one uh, great, uh, very experienced artist who was uh, just saying that just kind of keep your weirdness to check for that small moment. Because like the, the reality is that all of us are weird, but you don't ne necessarily have to show all of your weirdness in this kind of first impression interview situation. So kind of contain your your weirdness. Tatu was trying to find a very family friendly term to describe this. <laughs> <laughs> weirdness. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, yeah, yeah. I had like, how can I say it? 
so that it's <laughs> yeah. Don't make a mistake. Uh, yeah. That's your yeah. that's your job. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Alexi mentioned something which I'm curious to ask you, Tatu, is uh, about the online presence impact. So, do you think an artist online presence impact their hireability uh, in any way? It might not be just about how many followers or all that stuff that you have on the social media, but also how active you are and things like these. Do they have any impact or there can be a really introvert artist with best presented work, but completely absent from social media and there's still a trust that can come from hiring managers? Yeah, I think uh, it's more and more important nowadays. It didn't used to matter at all. Um, but nowadays, um, so many positions get filled without them ever being made public. Or the hiring manager might be just like browsing through their Instagram feed and they stumble upon your work because you have somebody who knows you and so forth. So it affects the discoverability a lot. Um, and... For for artists, it makes makes also sense. Like if if you are an artist and you want to use these social medias as professional platforms, then do make that conscious decision that it's then for your uh, work. Because like for the hiring manager, the, it they don't necessarily want to be exposed to your whole family history and your your holiday pictures and your questionable political tweets and all of these when they're hiring because on, on the social media side as well, quite often you also like have to just avoid, avoid making mistakes. Like you don't want to make mistakes that make you questionable or unhirable. Uh, so you did need to kind of be a little bit mindful of your kind of facade facade or how, how do you say it? Alex, that, that, as was a native, yeah, um, that was perfect. Yeah, that was perfect. Yeah, Alexi, what's what's your opinion on uh, like if you coming across a candidate application and they have like fifty thousand followers? Does that give any leverage to them in any way, biased or unbiased? Yeah, I I think it depends on on the role. I don't think the amount of follow for an artist. I don't think the amount of followers matters. I, I almost I'd almost go out on a limb and say if you have a, a ton a ton of followers, companies might make an assumption about you that you're you're making an income on that and and you're not going to you're not going to need the company so definitely the amount of followers isn't important don't don't go go buy and fake followers to get a job uh, but the um, the presence having a portfolio that is up to date is so important even if you have a job because if I, if I reach out to you with a job what's the first thing you're going to do you're going to go online and you're going to research the company. You're going to research me. You're going to do all that before you decide. I mean, that's, that's, that's our world. Before we make a decision about anything, we're using online research. So make yourself findable and make sure what we're finding is what you want us to see. So um, if you're super happy with your job and you're going to be there for the next 20 years, Great. Still, still update it because you don't know when when a surprise layoff is coming, and you don't know when there could be some life changing opportunity that is going to come knocking on your door because you have some some great portfolio work. 
And then on Tatu's other point, uh, that's something I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't think about when you first asked the question, but it, it is important. Your, your presence as far as, I suppose, your personality, your opinions. I, I definitely, it's hard for me to talk against this because I definitely take opinionated stances myself online on LinkedIn. Uh, but that's something that I've carefully considered every time I do it. And it's part of my personal brand. My personal brand is I am against when the big companies do shady things. And I'm here to help you, the candidate, understand that. And I'm on your side. You know, It's how I do what I do well, because um, I need to build trust. But if you're an artist, you don't that's not necessary and and it can it can be detrimental if you don't understand uh pr well and you don't understand how people will respond to things even well intentioned it is a risk and i um i would even go so far as to say like don't include a picture on your on your resume because you just don't know how you might be discriminated against even unconsciously you know and i learned that from um, one of the top game recruiters in the industry has been doing this 20 years. He's like, I don't talk about my personal life. I don't include a picture. I don't want anything to be used against me in some sort of biased way. Now, I'm not saying you can't be yourself and you should be yourself. But at the same time, remember, it is for work. And the more you reveal about yourself, the more you have a chance that people will relate to you and more you have a chance that people will not relate to you. So make sure that you understand those risks before you say anything online. Mm. Got it. So basically, in at the first moment, you should come across more from the professional grounds and keep it just targeted it, uh, to it. It just makes whole sense. Uh, something I want to know from, I mean, we have been talking on how the hiring process, but can we assist and help and provide some guidance to the people who are on the receiving end, like candidates and artists who are choosing to apply? I want some insight from you, Alexi, on how they should decode the job descriptions. Uh, what I want to uh, basically ask here is, how do they navigate and try to understand the job description? And what are the factors that can tell them that they should proceed to apply or not apply because sometimes I've seen that the job descriptions can either be such a template like like almost like a copy pasted template going on around the hiring managers they ask HR like hey I have a senior animator position do you have a previous one and they you get like a paragraph of one from the from the past and then sometimes it's just getting crowded with multiple requirement like knows Maya, knows Blender, knows Tweety, knows Unity. So in those cases, if that's the final shape of the job description posted out, and then the artists are trying to self-judge, is there kind of like a cutoff that if I meet 70% of it, I should maybe go and apply and try my luck? This is a great question, and I will answer it uh, with two words and then explain. Or no, three words. Job descriptions suck. No one likes writing them. No one likes reading them. No one likes dealing with them. And there's no one whose full-time job is to write them. So it's they're never going to accurately represent what they're meant to represent. 
if we had people that were had specialty in writing them, a lot of people say that they do, but that's not their full-time job. What a job description ends up being is a wish list is not a comprehensive requirement sheet, right? Now, what Tatu said earlier about a lot of roles get filled before they're even posted publicly is very true. So you have to assume once you're seeing a job description, there's it really only means two things. A, this role has been open, quote unquote, for a while. They've been looking for someone behind closed doors for a while and they can't fill it. And or it's a large enough company and there's some sort of legal requirement that they need to post it and they may have already have someone in mind. You know, there's there's some countries that that do that. But what how you can use a job description as a candidate is recruiters, especially if they're rather junior or they are uh, external, meaning they're they're from an agency, they don't work directly for the company. They might not have a deep understanding of what the role is, but they they sure as heck can read keywords. So this this whole this whole idea of take a job description and quote copy it and put it into your CV, I think there is some wisdom in that. Because if you say like Maya, Unity, Blender, Substance, Houdini, you drop those key words on your CV and your online profile, there may be a recruiter literally typing those things in. And not it takes a very experienced recruiter to abstract that and go, oh, I'm looking for someone with Houdini experience, but they don't list it. But I know this project probably worked in Houdini. That's a lot of jumping. So you can uh, certainly take that. Now, should you apply or not? That's a big question. Well, why not? (laughs) Why not? I mean, right now is an interesting time in our industry because there's mass layoffs everywhere. I I have no data to back this up, but uh, I believe that recruiters are one of the top skill sets that are out of work right now. So what that means is there's an unprecedented amount of unemployed people looking for work, and there's really no one on the other side fielding these applications. The, the entire recruitment team has been laid off, or, or a majority of them in most cases. So what that means is that there's fewer people reviewing more people. So the application process is going to be incredibly, incredibly slow. So I always recommend if you're going to apply, also reach out to somebody directly and let them know you've applied. Or even better, here's here's a pro tip. A recruiter may be measured sometimes on the candidates that they bring in, and they may not get, quote, credit or or even unofficial credit if the candidate applied. So if you're trying to get in good with a recruiter, I would recommend reach out to them first before you apply. Wait one or two days max. And you could even say there, hey, I, I haven't applied yet, but I wanted to reach out to you directly, and I do this and that. And if they they don't respond, then apply and go, hey, I already I applied. So that it gives you a really good organic follow-up with that person. 
and it also gives them a chance to kind of get credit for you. But these are these are such micro strategies that you don't have to do this every time. But there are things; those are things I've seen that can be helpful. Got it. Uh, Tatu, what's your take on should the candidate decode the job description, or you agree with what Alexi also added on stuff on the ways be- besides the job description being online to try and get into a job for yourself? Yeah, I think there was a lot of wisdom already uh, shared on that. I I think uh, it my advice goes more to the the hiring managers. Like be be aware of these cultural differences that people might have on how do they read those job descriptions. Because like there is like at least two extremes and then there's everything in between. Like people who see one line in the job description that they actually qualify for and that's their cue. Like, okay, I'll apply for this. And then there's like the other end of the spectrum is that there's somebody who uh, reading it that they're, 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 they're kind of feeling uh, nine out of 10 of those qualifying requirements, but then they, they're lacking that one and they're like, oh, so close. I could have applied, but they, they need this skill as well and I don't have it. And they're, they're kind of too honest about it. Personally, I would say that just go for it. Uh, apply. Um, also, I, I think uh, there's more and more jobs get uh, filled through other means than just applying. Uh, I'm actually surprised that we get so great applicants at Rovio that it's been super easy to get connected with some amazing talent across the world. Uh, but still, like if I dig a little bit deeper, often they know somebody who told them about the position or they know somebody who knows somebody and they've been discussing and or they uh, saw somebody from our company sharing the position in LinkedIn or social media. Uh, I, I think it's extremely powerful to get into contact with those people who are hiring. Anybody from the company you happen to know, like maybe they can refer you into that position. Many companies also have referral bonuses. So it might be actually in their benefit that instead of you just applying to that directly, you first contact that uh, inside person you have and ask like, hey, do you think I could be actually a good fit for this position? And then they might actually, if they actually think that you you might be, they might might just say to you that, hey, don't apply yet. Send me the CV. I'll add it to our system. I'll refer you. And then you're already so much ahead everybody else who just kind of called uh, applied. Um, because like then then there's already somebody vouching for you. Because this is also like what you're doing is you're trying to sell yourself to the need that the company has. If, if somebody else in the company is already thinking that you could be a good candidate for that, then half of your selling has already been done by that person who referred to you. But kind of just kind of recouping back to your original question, yes, definitely. Uh, apply to every position. Uh, contact those people. Contact the recruiters, contact hiring managers, uh, try to keep some kind of a relationship going with those people, especially if you're targeting the 
some company and you want to work in, the, in that company at some point. I have many people who I have very active uh, once a month uh, dialogue going on uh, in LinkedIn, for example. They're asking me how, how am I doing and I'm asking like, how are they doing? And they show me some of their latest stuff and I, like, we have a dialogue. And I have those people already that if I would have to fill a position quickly, I have this portfolio of people that I can use to fill those even before the job is out. Mm. I agree to both of you. And something I can say for all of the places where I got hired, whether it was through a referral or whether someone reached out to me from the employer side, or whether it was even an inbound application submitted by me and I getting hired. I think if I, and those are the places where I performed and I was able to last longer. I was, I had a great stint basically. If I compare my profile at the time of applying versus the job description, and if a robot was measuring it, <laughs> I would not qualify. Like I, I would basically not, not get selected to even get a call back from, from the employer. So it's it's very strange, isn't it? Um, it really yeah. it really is. Can I jump jump on that? And you called the robot out. I just need to use this platform that there's no robot. Okay, so <laughs> someone has to look at it. <laughs> uh, we're working hard looking at it. And then to piggyback on what Tatu said, it's it's important. You said talk about referrals. Okay, someone can get a referral. And I talked about you know maybe a recruiter is going to get some sort of credit. I think it's important at all at all points in in your career it's important to understand the the art of of selling and and the science of selling and just understanding that even though we we're we're humans we care about each other we have empathy at the end of the day you need to appeal to someone's self-interest even if if it's in their self-interest to help you it's still their self-interest so so there's a lot of asking going on right now and not a lot of showing value up front. So looking at it from the perspective of, I can solve this problem, person's problem, or I can do something for this person. A recruiter is going to get credit if you get hired. An internal person might get a, get a fee or at very least get lots of pats on the back for bringing someone good in. A hiring manager is going to get pats on the back and their job is going to be easier if you fulfill the needs. So just thinking about it that way, I think it's going to open a lot more doors. Mm. Uh, Tatu, question for you. So we discussed the means on how a candidate can get highlighted or probably knock at the door. But we all know that it's just about promising portfolio features. And that's something which is the, the biggest deal to go further. Like you can, you can reach out to the person, but if your portfolio is not great, you cannot proceed. So what are the key features in an art portfolio application that help basically the decision maker to proceed further? It's a bigger topic because portfolio, we can probably do even a separate episode going so deep, but still can you list out some key features that, are, that really matter to, uh, to move to next steps? It's a good question. I, I, I feel like I, I'm all the time saying the exact same things when I'm doing portfolio reviews and I'm, uh, I'm giving the same exact uh, advices to everybody. And every time I'm, I'm kind of surprised that they're not common knowledge. But first of all, with a portfolio, it's good to understand that uh, 
nobody will be studying it for eternity. The first impression is made in seconds. When I'm hiring and when I'm doing the, 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 the first screening of portfolios, I give roughly five to 10 seconds per portfolio. That's my initial screening. That's the only way I'm able to go through 30 or 100 uh, portfolios in an hour that I can put to that during my workday. So I'll be just like putting them based on that five to 10 seconds screening into multiple piles, but pretty much is no pile, maybe pile and yes pile. And then once I've gone through the whole mass of portfolios, I go back to that uh, yes pile and I'll go it through in a more detail. That's how much the first impression matters. So it's not only about all the art in your portfolio, but it's also how is, how is it presented? What are the thumbnails? Are the thumbnails selling you in a, in a way that it's apparent just by looking at the thumbnails, not even clicking them open the projects, that it's, that's a good candidate? I think uh, it's also good for the people who are applying or job hunting to really think about like what kind of a picture I'm trying to give about myself. It's, it's okay to be your authentic self um, in many places, but portfolio is kind of a calling card. Uh, if you have a very, very wide range, it might make actually sense that you have customized portfolios for different kinds of roles. Or if you have a very narrow uh, field of expertise, it's okay to also that your portfolio is only about that area of expertise, but you have to then understand that it will be appealing to smaller amount of uh, possible companies. So like if you're doing just hyper-realistic uh, environmental concept art, there's only going to be a certain amount of AAA studios that will be able to hire concept artists. And also within those studios, maybe they have one or two concept artists, not a whole army of them. Whereas like if you, uh, you do mobile-friendly, casual game art and you have a little bit of UIs, a little bit of characters, a little bit of environments, uh, you have examples of 3D, 2D, then you have a very wide appeal and your range of companies that you can apply uh, to with that one portfolio, portfolio alone is much wider than... If you have multiple skills, but one of them is not maybe up to the par of the other ones, sometimes uh, it's good to also kind of remind yourself that you might be actually not judged based on your best work, but that one single image that is the lowest quality picture in your portfolio, that will set the bar. Uh, because again, in the whole throughout the hiring process, the hiring managers or the talent acquisition managers, they're only looking for reasons to disqualify you from the hiring process. They're, they're kind of scanning for those like easy tells that, okay, wrong kind of style, wrong kind of talent, wrong kind of uh, experience. And they want to kind of narrow down that yes pile to very, very small so that they don't have to interview hundreds of, hundreds of artists, but only five, for example. So those are kind of like my main 
main thinking on the, the portfolio side. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, you, you said many great things. The first thing that you said is all about the first impression, the, the impression that can come in the five seconds of looking at your portfolio. So everything guided by the, the key pieces that you have selected for your portfolio, how your thumbnails look like, how easy it is to navigate in order to, to come across the best of your work. In the moment I've clicked on your link, uh, matters a lot. And then the second thing which you said is how game-specific that portfolio is like. So a lot of people are kind of like making this mistake where they're like trying to widen to go to illustration jobs, to animation, to whatnot and everything. And their portfolio is just, uh, I mean, it, it's good on visual development side, but there's nothing really for a game director to kind of like imagine their, their position in place to work into a game team. So if you are able to incorporate examples which are meant for mockups, include a bit of like thoughts on UI and things like these. So these will really make your work stand out that you you qualify to work for games. Um, and that also inspires adding some uh, research and processes into your samples. So you, you can like show how you've been thinking about from the game POV, what your brainstorming looks like. And then this is how you ended up reaching at a certain result. And also the consistency in portfolio that you talked about, like um, you, you may have many pieces, but there could be some really old pieces which were probably very good back then. And then they have some emotional value attached to it, uh, but you are still keeping them and this can create some sort of confusion whether this, these are your true skills or are these your true skills? And then people start to think like the hiring manager, they start to think whether maybe these best pieces are a result of a good art direction or a good collaboration, but otherwise the true skill set of this artist is the weaker pieces. And that kind of like creates a bit of like a doubt in, in your mind. Uh, Alexi, what's your take? Like um, any, any promising portfolio features that you can think of? Yeah, I think before I talk about that, I think it's the perspective of of disqualifying or qualifying, I think matters a lot when it when it comes to are you applying or not? You know, as as Tatu said, and I can attest to this, we had a lot of great applicants at, at Rovio. And I have throughout my career, I have not seen more qualified applicants come into a sing, single place. Qualified, I mean. Um, so from that perspective, if we have a surplus, then then our point is is we want to narrow. So we want to find ways to disqualify. But if you're applying somewhere um, that maybe isn't as well known or is, is smaller or in some way, and they don't have a surplus of qualified candidates, it may be the opposite, that they're just looking for a way to qualify you, right? So it, the context matters a great deal. So in those cases, uh, a, a bad piece on your portfolio might not weigh as heavily as, uh, as in those other cases. But as far as standing out, I'll just take it from the recruitment perspective, just making sure everything is, is labeled clearly so that someone who might not be an art expert understands what's going on. If you can just write a quick little blurb, a little sentence on what your contribution was on this piece that you're showing. I mean, it, it, sometimes it's it's not clear. Listing listing the, the titles, that's a big one. Listing what tools that you use, 
that can be very helpful. Because at the end of the day, if a recruiter is looking at it, they're just going to be looking to check off those boxes. And if they are advanced and they can do the subjective look, well, that's not something, the subjective taste of the hiring manager, that's not something you can change. You've already, you've already made the work. Just, just label it and understand maybe the context and, and uh, what the company has available to them candidate-wise. Yeah, yeah. Uh, agree. In that case, is there any sort of memorable application that you remember, which was like a standout game application you ever received? Uh, on top of your head, if you can recall any experience of coming across a portfolio, just made you jump out from the chair. And uh, you, if you don't want to name the, the person, oh, yeah. you can just mention about how the portfolio looked like. Yeah, I mean... Or was there something special that the, the person did? Yes. I mean, I won't name name names and get too specific, but in, the, in a world where we have a lot of noise and a lot of things are similar, doing something customized stands out quite a bit. It's, it's, it's how I work. It's how I get your attention as a candidate is I don't just send you some spam template because you've heard, you've heard them before. I, I try to find something personal about you and get your attention with that. So I've had, I've had a case where someone uh, was looking into a concept art position and they, they drew a caricature of me and, and sent it and sent it to me. And, and, um, I don't remember if the person got the position or not, but they, it certainly got it certainly got my attention. You know, using doesn't you don't have to do that um, for every role, but that's just an example of doing something that that stands out. Um, I've also seen um, at, at a recent company I, I was at. I wasn't part of this hiring; it was before me. But the founders keep going on and on about how great their their interview was because this person went and watched the game, played the game, and created some new assets around it and brought it into the interview process unasked. So that sort of thing can certainly stand out. Uh, I had an application, uh, not for art, but someone coded their website to be playable as a game. That's great. And then another one was, um, this person didn't end up getting the job because they weren't nowhere near qualified, but they kept sending me uh, jokes back and forth, kind of making fun of what's it like to be a recruiter. And this is when I was working at 343 for Halo. And he had put on this, like the Halo helmet and he had this paper shredder machine and he was just shredding pieces of paper that said resumes, uh, hopes and dreams. And he was made this hilariously funny video, kind of, you know, making fun of me lightheartedly and i've kept up with this candidate for five plus years now and i still go out of my way to help him not saying go mock people um, but what i'm saying is that personalization does matter customization does matter and um you got to give attention to get attention Mm. true tattoo any memorable application that you can think of so many, so, so, so many, so, so many. Um, I, I think like the first, first one that comes to my mind is, uh, is the one that I, I then we, we ended up, uh, hiring, uh, and has been as, as a guest, uh, in this, uh, podcast before, but Matthews Oliveira, uh-huh. 
name dropping that name. I hired him. Like <laughs> I hired him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, in that that wake, like uh, I think Brazilians do something a lot better than many other uh, of us. Like, and I, I've been joking about it, and I've been telling it to many Brazilians I've met ever since because. Uh, and we've been even thought, thinking about like, wh- where does this cultural difference come from? As an other end of the spectrum, you have the Finns who go through their, their kind of like school that is free intuition. Uh, um, then they, they have no kind of like, they have the security, like a social security that will keep you afloat if you fail. You're, you're not never in that need of overselling yourself and like having to sell yourself or otherwise you won't make it. Uh, and then you have um, Brazil where the, the, the kind of competition is so much more cutthroat that uh, you really have to be good at selling your skills to get noticed. And then even more, you have to be really great at selling yourself to uh, get opportunities abroad. So those people who have actually ended up uh, uh, getting hired to international companies from Brazil are all exceptional when it comes to their portfolios. Uh, and I, I do remember, like in, in case of math, uh, people came back from THU and they've just like, they had seen this portfolio and they they were just kind of going through the the portfolio back at the office and like inviting me to watch it as well. And was it saying like, look at this, this is the level of junior game artists nowadays. And we were all like, my God, we have to up our game because like this is putting us into shame. Like how great of a portfolio for somebody who was still kind of at the earlier stages of their career at that point and now has worked multiple years with us uh, doing some amazing work worth for us. So that that's one. Uh, then I do also have some people who I almost always interview for every single portfolio. I haven't yet had the opportunity of making the hire, but they're so memorable and they're so nice people and have a really great taste that I'm just like looking for that opportunity to someday work with them. And I have a couple of those as well. Uh, uh, that I could be name dropping, but I, I might want to keep them <laughs> for myself and hire yeah. them uh, sometime in the future. Yeah, um, I agree about Brazilian. Yeah. Uh, I work with one. I'm fortunate to work with one. And I had I met him at uh, Rovio, of course. And that's also what Alexi helped me, uh, like making it work. Right? His name is Andre Hoka. Yes. And uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Fantastic person, full of energy and such, such great uh, passion and attitude and amazing portfolio. So I agree. I mean, they have a very, very hardworking attitude and very creative uh, portfolio. So true. Yeah. Can I still, uh, still on the kind of uh, these gimmicky things that Alex also mentioned, uh, Alex also mentioned the, the, the things that you do to grab the attention of the hiring manager. And this goes also a little bit kind of back to the, the, the question before, that should I apply even if I don't have those skills? Uh, this is an admission that I've then done multiple times in the previous occasions. And I'm happy to uh, 
tell it out there is that the first job I've ever got was that in uh, it was kind of a casual. I met met the, the hiring manager with a mutual friend. Uh, we were at a at a party midsummer somewhere in the beach, and they asked me, "Do you know Flash? Flash Macromedia Flash? Back in the days, it was like web uh, web web design type of a position." And I was like, sure, of course I know Flash. The next day I went and bought uh, Flash software, studied it for the whole week and enough that I could ma- remake my portfolio in Macromedia Flash. And then the portfolio that I sent on the Monday, uh, the next week was made in Flash. I had no experience. It was very horrible, but it was kind of like just proving a point that. I can do whatever you need me to do. And uh, sometimes you can kind of also be just like confidently as <laughs> like if that's that's like uh, something that if you say no to that, it might be one of those that it, you get disqualified. You don't get that other chance of actually proving. You might actually not get the opportunity of even sending your portfolio in because they're like, yeah, but we would really like somebody who knows Flash. Yeah. So... Yeah. Sometimes you can also gamble with those. Right. I have a similar incident that applies for me when uh, I converted my weakness into an advantage at the end. These were the days when you had like lots of on-site interviews. I mean, now mostly some hiring can happen all remote. But uh, when I was coming to Barcelona and I was for my final interviews at King, it was like a day-long schedule. Uh, This was the first time when I was about to travel out from India. and. Uh, gonna meet a lot of people from Europe and have interviews, and I was very nervous about it because it was been like six, seven months of interview rounds, which I did not want to collapse at the end by by performing badly or whatsoever. So what I did was I took several of my sketchbooks and also I printed an art book of myself, like uh, all the work compiled together into just like how those Pixar books are with the hardcover, and uh, they would have collection of uh, visual development work described with the proper process and thoughts and everything. So I put all of those things into the, um, like a good, well-printed, hardbound book. And I took them along mainly because I was worried that if I'm being asked on certain questions and the interviewer is looking directly in front of my eyes, I, I don't want to like, for example, get nervous. So what I did was whenever my interview started, the on-site one, I presented my book to them, like the sketchbook, and uh, they flipped over the pages. And it it maintained a bit of like a, a more organic and casual conversation going on where uh, they were flipping through the pages of the book. And it helped me ease my nervousness about this thing. So, And at the end, that small uh, change where I brought a book of myself and a sketchbook was received in a very well-prepared kind of uh, application and I got some good feedback from people that like, this is how we can see the passion where you have made a book of yourself and have brought this over. So it eventually ended up in an advantage. Mm-hmm. I think I've seen one version of that book. Yeah, I think so. I brought it to Rovi as well, yeah. probably. Uh, yeah. it, it really made an, made an impact because like, it, it, it told like a very com- complete story of you, who you are. So it was like a, just a pleasure of like, kind of imagining 
how all of those things that ended up into those pages came to be. So it was like a very kind of pleasurable experience of just flipping through those pages. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Uh, Tatu, I want to know, um, can we talk a bit about the mistakes now? Because we discussed like what mm -hmm. are the, the good things, but can there be some mistakes specifically on game art applications from, from candidate, which is a total turnoff? So many, so many, Un unfortunately, so many, like people do sometimes like the, the silliest mistakes and kind of, that's why I, I also do kind of portfolio reviews and invite people to discuss with me because I, I want people to uh, do well in interviews and I want people to not make those mistakes. If we set, set aside the, the kind of mistakes that you can already do in your portfolio. Maybe, maybe, maybe I can mention like one just to kind of get people an image. Like some people might s send a portfolio where they have like only uh, sketches of nudes and then you have like a, uh, only sketches of nudes and no, no kind of finalized game arts. And you're like, well, all of these are anatomically correct, but I can't use any of this. Like they, they are not like I would have to use so much imagination of uh, just kind of see how any of this would be applicable to the problems that I'm trying to solve. And maybe kind of that way, segueing to the problems or the mistakes that people do in the interviews is that I think uh, people don't think enough about what is it that the other party, the company that is hiring, is actually looking for. Way too many times we go there and we're just kind of in a full sales mode and we're just kind of uh, selling our best parts and emphasizing how great we are at this and that. Whereas like it might be much more powerful to go there and ask, ask questions, go be prepared in the interview, like ask like, hey, what kind of an artist you're looking for? You mentioned this and this, like, are you also looking this and that? Are you, like what what kind of an organization you have? And then listening in on the the hiring manager explain how they're organized, what kind of games they're making, what exactly is the position. And then you can use all of that information you get from the hiring manager on providing yourself as an answer to the questions or the the problems that you identified. Uh, so maybe that's, that's one thing, like we don't listen enough and that's, that's kind of a rookie mistake. And also maybe it's, maybe it's not su such a mistake, but it's like an, the advanced version of how to do well in, in interviews is that you listen, you understand the problem that the other part is trying to solve and you try to match your like uh, you want, want to come across as somebody who helps them solve those problems. That's the, the kind of what you're trying to achieve in the interview. Then the kind of actual mistakes is that you can't contain your weirdness in the, in the moment. And you, you start uh, talking about how... Maybe we have to kind of go into actual examples to make it more kind of uh, easier for people to understand. But 
like no matter what kind of a person you are in your uh, free time, not all of that is relevant information in the hiring process. One of the most common mistakes is that you start bashing, for example, your ex-employer. Uh, uh, really bad mistake. You, you might still have rage against uh, your previous employer if the, the, um, your employment didn't end in a favorable way. Try to keep it to yourself, uh, find some positives to say, or focus on the things that went well. Uh, don't start bad-mouthing your ex-employer. Every single thing that might be not like necessarily bad, but like being very, very political, being very, very openly, like this is something that I'm really passionate about. If the thing that you... Uh, are passionate about is something that can be divisive. It can always kind of backfire. Like the worst case scenario is that you go into the the meeting and you you just explain how you're so full of rage that you want to go bash in people's faces uh, after every day after work. Like that might be still true, but that's not the wise thing to say in an interview. Totally. Uh, agree on both points, uh, especially the first one where you mentioned about the uh, the portfolio having a lot of irrelevant pieces, which are more like studies and practice work, and they're good to include and good to support your um, your attitude as an artist. But if it's like majority of it and it's not helping the uh, the hiring manager understand the real application of your skills, then uh, you have to work on some projects and include those projects, even if they're personal. Uh, Alexi, what's your take on um, what are the the mistakes maybe game artists make when they are submitting an application? Yeah, well, the negativity is a, a big one for sure. I mean, we all have had experiences that we we wish were different, and maybe maybe the other party was truly at fault. That 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 can happen. But going there, it's just a psychological thing. If you're talking poorly about somebody, whether it's correct or justified or if not, there's, there's, a, there's a little trust meter in our brain where we go, well, this person will probably talk badly about us later at some point. So it, it, doesn't, it doesn't breed comfort. So, so agree with, with both of you. Just, just keep it to a, a minimum. I, I'm a little bit, again, <laughs> as I said, I'm a little bit more opinionated than, than most. I, I do that very carefully. I think if I'm talking about an experience that was poor or I feel like, um, you know, uh, a company might have handled something unethically or something like that, um, I'm not going to offer up that information. But if someone says, you know, well, why did you leave this company? You could, you could say something very, very broad. Oh, uh, you know, some of the actions just didn't, they, they conflicted with my, my morals and ethics. So I, I had to move on. You know, you don't have to pretend like it was perfect, but you just don't want to get into this complaining mode. And mo- and most of the time, you leave it at that. People are going to be like, "Okay, I don't want to dig into that because I don't want to hear that that negativity." Um, and, and in that way, it it can show that um, it can show that you do have opinions and you do you do stand up for something. So it's not it's all all negative as long as you're not complaining. On my side, uh, in addition to that, I would say there's a 
there's a lot of like influencers out there like and self-titled like career coaches on LinkedIn, on TikTok that will give these broad tips on how you need to negotiate uh, your salary or what you need to say in a first screen or what you need to say in an offer. And trust me, I've, I've heard them all. And it's really obvious when you're, when you're reading off some scripts and, and I have seen it where we thought someone was great. And then they're coming out with this negotiation script that I've probably seen the video because that's my job. And I'm like, oh, this person is actually not confident in what they do. They needed to pull some script from somewhere else. So you don't need to do that. I mean, your experience will speak for itself. And as Tatu said, all you need to do is not make a mistake and you're, and you're good. So, so don't feel that we all get nervous and, and, and nerves and excitement are, are in the same part of the brain. So, so that's okay. It's just, don't don't make that mistake of trying to add something in at that last minute that thinks going to help and is not authentic to you. Last thing I would say is a, a mistake. Um, it's just not having any questions. You don't need to you don't need to make up questions for the sake of it. That's also pretty obvious. But I think Tatu said if you're just only in the selling mode and you're only I just need to sell myself and you don't. You're not curious about the company or the opportunity. It co- it can come across as seeming very junior or unconfident. You know, you want to have questions that you truly are uh, curious about, and that aren't having to do with salary or benefits or time off. You know, asking questions of of ways of working and who who you're going to be working with. You can even ask like, what's it like to work with this person? How do how do we handle feedback? Uh, you know, how do we handle deadlines? Those things that show you know what you're talking about, show you've done this before, but also are relevant to you and your work. Yeah, and maybe maybe kind of like just continue on that. Exactly what Lex said. Uh, your questions shouldn't be about your needs. You have to be in that interview. Like uh, the best thing that you can do in an interview is that you're interested about the company that you're applying to or the company that you're being interviewed to. So being interested about the problems that you could potentially help them solve, that, that, that kind of questions, like you don't need to have these like, like uh, cliche uh, interview questions, like some interviewers have like, uh, what would be your superpower? <laughs> what is your kryptonite? Yeah. Uh, as an in, like when you've been interviewed for a position, you don't need to have that kind of uh, cliche questions. I think hiring managers shouldn't have that cliche questions as well. But you can have those like, how do you handle uh, dailies? Like, how do you do? Like, what what is daily routine? Like, what is your ideal candidate? Uh, what what kind of things that you wish the candidate will uh, solve? what kind of additional things you have in your studio that you uh, are pain points for you because like maybe i can help you solve those as well kind of being genuinely on like empathetic about uh, and wanting to know more about the company 
like just being able to be active and asking those questions can make a good impression. Uh, Alexi, I have something to ask about the, uh, because we were discussing portfolio and also you mentioned about not making mistake. Uh, does, like, let's talk about confidential portfolios or something which is on NDAs. Uh, sometimes I've seen that often where a candidate shares a confidentially uh, password protected uh, ND affecting portfolio. Does that raise any red flags or uh, do you you go consider it and you go ahead like it could be for one of the project that the artist has previously worked on but the employer doesn't allow you to put them still because they were like um, the game was cancelled but they um, they are not letting you keep it and therefore you you're a bit protective about yourself so you put it in a password protected document could that raise more concerns more than show your abilities and trust or are the future employers considered enough and they, they proceed? It's a great, great question. I will go ahead and state officially, I am not condoning that anyone go against their NDA. I am, that, I am not recommending that. Uh, your, your, um, your legal agreements are yours to handle and yours to take risks with as you wish. Now, if you do wish to take that risk, I personally think it's a way to show something that you've done. I think a lot of artists are given a disservice when they work very hard on something and say the game gets canceled and then they can't show all the work that they've done. And this can have a snowball effect where your game gets canceled, you can't show what you've done, so you don't have as many portfolio pieces as someone whose game has shipped. So then you get fewer opportunities, right? And you're maybe having to take opportunities that are more risky, and then those could shut down. And then you don't want to get in a situation where you're the artist where <laughs> everything you do gets, gets shut down. So uh, taking your own legal risks to share these things can be a way to combat the fact that the companies do shut you down in that way and don't let you, let you share. I have reviewed portfolios that are behind a password and I don't ask, I don't want to know. You shouldn't tell me um, what the situation is or not, but you just say, these are behind, these are behind a password. Please do not share them outside of you. That's all you need to say. And to me, I don't find it as a, as a red flag. I feel like you, you did that work and it, it, you are showing it but you just don't want to put yourself in a position where you're going to get in trouble. So don't, don't tell me if you have an NDA or not. Just if you're going to do something like that, be incredibly vague uh, so that, you know, if it ever comes to it and I'm called as some sort of witness, you know, I have to tell the truth. So just don't, don't tell me. That's never happened. But um, yeah, I don't see it as a red flag personally. Tatu, what about the, the secret? web links, which you have to enter password for. Yeah, I'm just smiling for Lex taking the, the kind of lawyer approach. Like, uh, <laughs> But yeah, I, I also would kind of give the same disclaimers. Um, you don't have to explain why something is behind password. It's better like that you don't explain it too much. It's a very common practice 
it's better than not having a portfolio at all. Uh, this, here comes like one of the the kind of more very common mistakes with the passport protected portfolios, though, is that somehow somewhere in the pipeline the passport gets uh, lost, and the hiring manager has no way of actually accessing that portfolio or any of your work, especially if that's the only portfolio you have. If it's the only portfolio you're sharing with the hiring manager, make sure that the password is in enough of places that it doesn't, for example, get uh, automatically uh, taken away from some field uh, where it shouldn't belong in the first place. Uh, some of this data uh, that you enter into a system, especially in a company website, gets processed by software. Not all of that data will be in exactly that form that you think it will be. Uh, so some of it will be parsed and sometimes the passwords might be lost. I've been many times in that mode where I'm trying to guess the password for the portfolio because I don't want to disqualify somebody just because the technical glitches in the system. But then uh, it might kind of give you uh, give a bad first impression of you if I'm not even able to see your portfolio without asking a talent acquisition manager to contact you first and ask for the password separately. Uh, but yeah, for, for me, it's, it's totally not a red flag. Like, as long as I can access those works somehow. Yeah, yeah, got it. Uh, there's something I want to know from the portfolio samples matching the kind of project and the company portfolio. Uh, I'm going to give you a scenario, just like let's do a kind of like a role play, all right? So we know that when we, in a game team, when they're working on a certain project, there's like a lot of research, there's a lot of like yes and no's, which are already getting answered when a project is taking a final shape. So let's take, for example, a basketball game, for example. Let's say you are developing in your game team, you are the art director, there are several artists, you have worked on that project for six, eight months. You have solved out all the the answers to how the the rightful style or even the research about the subject uh, is going to look like. And then me as a candidate, I know that you are creating a basketball game. Currently, my portfolio has nothing close to the kind of work that you require. Uh, I have maybe fantasy dragons or whatnot. And I'm trying to maybe impress you by probably like when I'm applying, I'm thinking just a bit outside, but because I don't know the entire context, I, in a rush, I create some samples which are around the subject, but maybe they they might not be the, the most fit to your current need. Is that more like an overkill and a turnoff where now you would judge based on, oh no, because we know so much about the, the game that we are creating and this person now has an example of a basketball I can completely imagine that this person's skills do not match or would you give them a bit more like a leverage or let's say like a, a appreciation for uh, a sample where there was at least like an attempt. So in other words, how much does matching portfolio matters where the candidates chosen subjects and themes, if they relate to your studio work, uh, help or do not help? Yeah. So, um, 
I I kind of like it. Uh, I I think that's one of those gimmicks that you can do to kind of be me- remembered. Uh, I've interviewed a lot of people who have made, for example, fan art of Angry Birds, and maybe if they were like between maybe pile and yes pile, maybe that kind of one fan art of Angry Birds was that kind of one thing that pushed them from the maybe pile to yes pile. And I was like intrigued. Uh, and I wanted to ask them something about that piece. And uh, like, what does the brand me- mean to them? Like, why did they do a, a fan art? I, I think that can be effective. The, the, the other, other thing is that you do something that if you want to apply to a company that has for example, casual mobile games, look and feel. Um, you don't necessarily have to do something like a fan art of Angry Birds to like, make an impression, but you do something that uh, looks stylistically close so that for the hiring manager, it's like the, the first thing that they notice is that, hey, that could be in our game. There's nothing more powerful than that. Because like every time you have like a portfolio that has like fantasy dragons and uh, stuff that is the coolest stuff. This is, by the way, one of the mis- biggest mistakes that people make for their portfolio. It's just like they keep the portfolio as just record of all the cool stuff they've done, but they don't really think about what kind of an impression it does. Like I have zero project in my studio that has fantasy dragons or uh, lots and lots of like very realistic humans in them. So every time I see a portfolio like that, no matter how great it is, I will have to use my imagination of thinking of how do those skill sets uh, translate into the skills that are needed in this specific role. If you have a portfolio piece that shows me that like UI buttons, UI icons, uh, matchables, these small game assets that could be from our game, they're so much more impressive to me and more powerful in the hiring process than any of those fantasy illustrations or character sketches uh, because I don't have to use my imagination. I can see straight away that those could go into our game. So you already sold yourself with that kind of one piece. Mm-hmm. What about you, Alexei? I know you you are creative yourself, so you can uh, make your guess and imagination, but um, does it help, like, for example, when the um, talent acquisition people are looking up for portfolios and they know the requirement that, yeah, we are making an 80s game. So I just came across some samples of someone's portfolio having more Rambo and all those kind of, like, work. Uh, that makes it a more likelihood of, yeah, this this sounds good for us. Yes, it's a good question and a, another good point from Tatu about going going the extra mile, as it were, doing a little bit extra effort. I will I will agree with everything except caution, and this is something I learned in my my acting days. We were always coached: if you are auditioning for a role, do not show up in costume. Do not show up in the full costume, right? So if you're auditioning for a soldier, you don't want to come in with your full costume. You want to have some effect. 
maybe a hat that looks kind of military. And the reason for this is that you do not, you are not going to be able to make that impression or make the work of art or make the performance as good as it will be. So you need a little bit of a, a suspension of disbelief. You need a little bit, you need to make them use their imagination a little bit, right? So say the example of doing a sports game, you've only, you've only had fantasy dragons and you want to do a sports game. Well, I would not tr put a bunch of effort in and try to make a, a game ready piece in a week just to impress because it will not show up. It won't, won't be as good. And so then you actually might harm yourself. But uh, to your example, yes, if it's a recruiter is very junior, they might just specifically be going, you know, I have to look for sports examples. So in that case, doing a little bit of extra effort to get noticed is great. But think of it as putting on like a military style hat and not the full soldier outfit. Do something that shows that a sample but don't don't make it stand in for a a complete piece yeah maybe i can add to that uh before like i don't want to have like a flood of angry birds fan art in uh, in the portfolios that are coming in it's good to also remember that the the hiring manager is probably very very picky about the brand of their company and they're very very used to watching for example like i i can pick when angry birds is not drawn in the right way i barely can draw it myself on the level that i want my illustrator or character artist to do uh, and my eye is very very good at picking out all the imperfections in the characters and i notice when they are not in model so uh, maybe maybe it's safer option that if you're applying to Rovio, you make fan art of Pixar, or if you're uh, applying to a company that is doing a basketball game, you do uh, uh, sketches of uh, soccer or ice hockey to just show that you can do something that is kind of easy to imagine that it could be used, but it's not exactly the same thing. True, got it. And Tatu, what do you feel about um, reapplication strategies for candidates when, like, does a no means no forever? Or um, in certain circumstances, the candidate can consider reapplying. Is there a duration that they should keep in mind? Or should it be about some upgrade on the skills? Or whether they fit to another game in, in your company, uh, these kind of moments? Well, there's very... Rarely there's any harm that you're doing by keeping the contact alive. Um, personally, I think it's a it's safer option is that you kind of keep those uh, relationships alive. You don't necessarily want to kind of uh, seem off as being too pushy. Um, and that, that can be kind of a negative thing. But... I have very few examples of somebody like coming off as too pushy. Uh, and most of the people who I stay in contact, they, they keep like, they're, they're very active of keeping that uh, relationship live. And uh, 
it, it works in their benefit. Uh, there is the saying that often the no is not indefinite no. It might be just no for this position. And it's especially true if you've managed to get through multiple application steps. Then it might be that the hiring manager was really bummed that they couldn't hire more than one and they had to choose between great candidates. So it, it, it depends. Mm. Uh, Alexi, what's your take on the the same thing, which is about like whether a no is a no, when when should they uh, they come back? Uh, what the what's the recommendation on your side about maintaining this relationship after a no happens, and uh, you you stay in touch with the recruiter? You, you can you connect with the hiring manager or social media profiles like LinkedIn or these places, and be like friends for maybe for future to to come back on yeah i i like it personally uh i i enjoy that that's one of the one of the things that i really like about my job is that i just i get to make friends for a living so i but i'm not i'm not the i'm not everybody i think it it depends on the approach if when you're reaching out to these people are you always asking for something then then that per, then that person's not going to view that interaction favorably but if you are just reaching out just to say oh i saw this article that reminded me of the conversation we had great uh oh i saw you're doing this looks great good for you cool uh even small small questions that require very little work. Oh, hey, I'm applying for this other job and I, I got to choose between this and this approach. Like, what do you think? Those sorts of things require very little. And I think that does breed a good relationship. As far as should you apply again and is no a no? No is only a no when you're... Um, if you behave poorly, I think if you if you are rude or you get upset, my goodness, the worst thing you can do for your career is when you receive a rejection and you just pop off and you give an attitude. I mean, it's just then then it's a no forever. I mean, and we all have bad days and we all it sucks to be rejected and and I can empathize, but it's like even though I can empathize, like and then I'm never going to put you in front of a hiring manager because if you then give them that attitude, then I'm going to look bad, right? So maintaining relationships with recruiters and art directors is great. A good art director is going to know a, a good amount of artists. Talk to said himself many times. He has a he has a yes pile of all these people who'd want to work with in the future, and he's not telling us who they are. Uh, so so that's very important. And recruiters, we're we're very aware that we're expendable. So once the hiring stops, usually we're going to be let go or have to move on to somewhere else. So our our power is our network. So if it's a no, even from a whole company, the whole company doesn't want to hire this person, keep up with that recruiter because they're probably going to go somewhere else, right? So absolutely not. No is not a forever no. Tatu, your closing words on this, uh, like do candidates connect with you? 
I, I really wanted to kind of say that, that I often uh, remind people that it, the same goes for, for kind of any kind of leadership position. Like you never know when uh, somebody who used to work for you or work in your team might be hiring and you're on the other side of the table. So I try to treat interviews in a way, the same way. I never know that maybe I'm in the, uh, the applicant sometime in the future. And if I'm rude or if I'm not giving like a good impression of uh, myself and my company when I'm interviewing others, why would they hire me in the future? So like the relationship building is what interviewing and hiring for me is. Uh, I've even had cases where uh, I got so happy when I saw somebody re- like reapply. And I remember that we had a really great conversation five years ago. And I, I just kind of like sent them a message straight away like, hey, uh, I really would like to talk with you again. And it was kind of like, I, I had to be kind of upfront that maybe it's not for this position, but let's reconnect. Let's talk. Like, let's see if like, like, I want to hear more about your situation uh, so that I put you in the, <laughs> my, my secret pile of yeses somewhere that I might contact you about some other opportunity. Or sometimes uh, I've talked about uh, with people like that are kind of on the, are not necessarily good for position, for example, like where this happened to be located for. Like if it's a very junior position and we don't want to relocate somebody from the other side of the world for that position, I might still kind of have a discussion with them, want to hear more about them, ask if they're interested to do occasional freelancing, for example. And I start to build that relationship with them. And I'm hoping that maybe we find different ways of working together, even if it's not like, even if it's not yes for this particular position. 100%. You, you said it, which is all about if you're getting rejected, there can be several more factors that might not just be driven by your competence and your actual hands-on skill or whatever uh, judgment criteria for the description or role. But it can be many factors. Like in the, in the beginning, we were talking about this. Maybe the person is already hired and that's where why the job description is there. Uh, maybe there's no relocation facility available right now. So no one should get demotivated by probably like getting, not even hearing back and they can trust on applying in a few days, maybe another time and stuff like this. And connecting with the, especially like the recruitment manager is going to help you because then they they recall and they remember you and they could maybe even like reach out to you by themselves without you having to apply once again. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you so much, both of you. It was very, very insightful. And all the information that you shared here today was uh, very helpful for uh, many people, I'm sure. So thanks a lot for your time. And this was really, really nice to talk to you. Of course. Thanks, Shiraj. Good to see you. And good to see you again, Tatu. Likewise. Nice seeing both of you. It was really pleasant uh, to discuss these topics with you both. Thank you so much. Have a great day.